Welcome to Be Brave at Work, a podcast devoted to helping you take the next step in your workplace. Each week, we'll be talking with real people with real stories about things they have not said or done or have said or done in their workplace that required bravery. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. This is Ed Everts, and I'm the founder and president of Excellius Leadership Development. Welcome to Be Brave at Work, a podcast devoted to helping you take the next step in your workplace. I hope you'll listen to our past podcast conversations, and if you'd like to hear past episodes, go to BeBraveAtWork.com, subscribe to our podcasts, and learn some valuable lessons about bravery at work. My new book, Drive Your Career, Nine High-Impact Ways to Take Responsibility for Your Success, is now available in paperback, on Kindle, and in audio at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and any online book retailer you prefer. Check out Drive Your Career today. Our podcast today is sponsored by Cabot Risk Strategies. Based in Woburn, Massachusetts, Cabot Risk Strategies has created innovative and customized insurance strategies for individuals and families, businesses, nonprofits, commercial real estate, and public entities. Cabot's client base continues to expand both within the region and within the markets they serve. And if you are looking for customized insurance services and solutions, contact Cabot at 800-222-5963 or visit them for more information at cabotrisk.com. We're going to continue our conversation with Melody Stanford-Martin, who is a social ethicist and communications expert. Melody is also the author of Brave Talk, Building Resilient Relationships in the Face of Conflict. She's the founder of the Brave Talk Project and founder and CEO of Cambridge Creative Group, a narrative marketing and design company specializing in nonprofit outreach. Melody's work focuses on rhetorical innovation, courageous community engagement, and out-of-the-box thinking to solve social problems. Let's continue our conversation with Melody. One uh, one other area I want to talk about a little bit, Melody, is early in the book you have a chart, and you talk about this in the book, but you also have a graphic that discusses what to do when someone brings a questionable idea uh, <laughs> to, a pot, to the potluck of ideas. And what I loved about this is that forced me to think a little bit about, well, what if I'm the recipient of feedback about something that I'm doing that is not constructive or a behavior that I have? You know, we've talked mostly to our listeners about how to have the conversation, how to go to a boss and say something that might be hard for the boss to hear, or how to do something that might be hard to do, but not the recipient of it. And this really, you know, put me into that perspective of being someone who's hearing something from somebody else. Uh, and a couple of the ideas that you have for the listener or the person whom the brave person is talking to is, you know, can the idea this person is sharing with me be supported? Uh, is it relevant? Is it well-meaning? I think that's such a critical behavior. If you're being brave with somebody else at work, you can't be vindictive. You can't be harmful. You can't be showing them that you're right, right? You have to show them that you're well-meaning in what you're saying. Uh, does it share power, right? Because social power is such a strong influencer in respect to how we behave uh, in the workplace. And the last one, which I think is also relevant, is the person who brought it trustworthy, right? If I'm going to go talk to you about something, if you don't trust me, we're not going to get anywhere, right? You're not going to pay attention to anything that I'm saying. If you trust me, I believe your listening is going to be better. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, especially as a recipient of somebody who's bringing forth a questionable idea, and I didn't mean to go through the whole model and take everything uh, about it. But, uh, you know, what are some of the thoughts about this concept? And is there anything that else that you can add to the to the descriptions that I just shared? So if 
If listeners take nothing else from anything from this conversation, I would love for people to hang on to this gem here. Disagreement, to a great extent, is healthy for us. Many of us develop an antagonistic relationship with disagreement itself. And myself, I'm one of those people. I'm such an avoider, naturally. I just want to run away. If someone disagrees with me, I just want to shrink up and put my head in, in a pillow, you know? But as, as I've started to do this work, my, my attitude, my relationship with disagreement itself has changed. I have now started thanking people for disagreeing with me. When they take the time to disagree with me well, I'll say thank you. Thank you so much for you. You could have you could have ignored me or you could have called me names, but instead you took the time. That shows care. And so when someone comes to me and they say, hey, I have some feedback for you, you know, that you're probably not going to like, I say, okay, you know, because that disagreement makes not only our relationship stronger, it gives me important information for adjusting my actions and attitudes. And ultimately it makes ideas stronger. Disagreement makes ideas stronger, right? Imagine... Imagine the United States without protest, which is a form of public disagreement. Imagine the lack of rights that we would have if we never had public protests, public disagreement, people duking things out, debating things out. I don't think we often have given a lot of critical thought to the important role disagreement plays in our lives and how disagreement really presents us with a set of opportunities. When someone brings a difficult idea, a painful, a painful thought to us, hey, you're doing this thing that's hurting me or you're doing this thing that isn't right. It's it's so hard to hear because it can feel destabilizing to our very identity of who we are. But also to recognize that there's a kind of gift in that exchange. There's There's a gift there that can be extremely valuable if we know how to see it for what it is. So, so consider, thank you for disagreeing. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for disagreeing is an important nugget. Now to your other question, you asked what happens when someone brings a questionable idea. And I would say that's a pretty diff different conversation, but we do have a larger social uh, dialogue right now, discourse around cancel culture, for example. What are the ethical parameters or not of canceling someone, of giving someone the boot? You, you say enough toxic things and you're out of here. And while I do think that sometimes that is a power that needs to be wielded, I do think people have... Right now, we are so polarized and we are so all or nothing right now. We have been quick to shut the door in people's faces, right? Without making this a larger transformative process. So I think I would urge anyone listening to give a lot of thought to that, right? There are some times when we need to draw a line in the sand and say, no, that's, this is not acceptable. We're not accepting this. But I do think that a lot of times we're swift to almost throw people in the trash, right? Shut the door. We commit what I call social death, right? Cutting people off, defriending people. It might sound like an innocuous thing, but that's a social death. That's a severing of that relationship, that fabric that's making us community, making us a society. If enough of that happens, we're starting to fray apart at the edges. And I think a lot of us feel that. So, so I think it's a balance between understanding that disagreement and diversity of thought is a gift, and actually, when when disagreement is not allowed to happen, something kicks in called reactance theory in psychological terms, that when someone's ideological options are limited, they will dig in their heels and often run the opposite direction. So if, if you have six Skittles on a table and you say you're only allowed to eat the purple one, people will automatically go, well, why not? Why can't I eat the green one? And they'll, they'll get mad about it, right? The same thing with ideas. If you say you're only allowed to believe X idea, the the immediate 
effect is to react. And this, I think, has really strong implications in the workplace. So anyway, it's a balance between healthy disagreement, understanding, ideological diversity, allowing people freedom of thought and freedom of choice is so important for a healthy democracy and for healthy organizations. But also balancing with that with the fact that sometimes we do need to have strong boundaries because sometimes ideas are toxic and we need to give some serious thought to what to do in those situations. Well, I love this idea of the ability to share a disagreement or a different perspective. And what strikes me about that, Melody, is that as the leader, I need to create an environment where people feel it's okay to come to me and say, hey, Ed, can I talk to you for a few minutes? I have some feedback that might be hired to hear. If I'm viewed as unapproachable, which unfortunately many leaders are, or disinterested, or you know whatever these negative influences are, the likelihood of me coming to you is diminished significantly, because then I'm creating stories, well, he's not going to listen, or he's just going to fluff it away, or he's going to be polite and say, oh, that's fascinating, and never do anything about it. So, you know, it really starts first with the culture and the environment that I'm in, where I know that if I have an idea, or if I have a thought or suggestion that might be something that I think that you need to hear, that it is welcomed, right? Uh, you know, I'm thinking about a client company that we just rolled out a performance assessment process with, and it's a completely different process than what they've had in the past. And you know, during this initial rollout, we created a cult. We attempted to create a culture of openness to say. As we're rolling this out, now is the time to ask questions. Now is the time to tell us something you don't think is going to work, that you're not clear on, that we've said it 10 times, but you still don't get it. You know, we're not going to be angry. We're looking for that, right? So we wanted to tell people that it was okay to say, hey, Ed, I know you mentioned this a little bit while ago. Can you go over this again? I'd say, absolutely. Let's go over it again. Because, you know, quite frankly, if one person asked it, theoretically, there are other people who have the same question, but didn't have the bravery to say, hey, can we pause for a minute, right? So, you know, creating this environment where it's okay to ask people these types of questions are important. I couldn't agree with you more. And I would encourage any leader, any manager, any any higher up person who's listening right now to think about crafting a, a culture in your organization of healthy disagreement and to see that as valuable. I do want to add on top of that, that a lot of the leaders that I've worked with or interacted with in my various lines of work have, because I, ha I have the unique ability to work as a coach and a consultant and a, and a, and a contractor, a third party who's not in the organization. So I've been on the outskirts of or many, many organizations of all different types, of all different sizes. And it's remarkable to me how many leaders fear that if they're not projecting strength that they will lose standing and respect in their employees' eyes. And I think that disagreement feels threatening because it's it seems to run counter to that projecting of strength, right? If I let someone disagree with me and call me on something, I'm not strong anymore. I can't lead anymore. I think we really need to challenge that assumption. I think it is the epitome of strength, the epitome of bravery to accept disagreement and that kind of feedback. And to, to let that challenge our perceptions, right? And I think it, it goes, goes back to a, a different way of working, right? A, a, a way of working that, uh, that really gets away from a militaristic hierarchical view of organizations and into more of a collective, together we're a genius. It's not right to put pressure on one person to always be brilliant and strong all the time. That doesn't actually create sustainable leadership within an organization. 
because you're missing out on opportunities for everyone in the organization to have input. So how can we create a culture that allows that ebb and flow of ideas and creates structure for it, creates structures for it, and that's where system th systems thinking comes in, creates avenues of communication where it's not just putting the impetus on a low level employee to go to the boss and out of the blue confront them, right? It's the higher up people creating avenues and invitations and methods for that feedback to start trickling through, right? So I think when we're talking about bravery, I think we can talk about building organizational structures that are conducive to bravery. Yeah, so many leaders today look at words like vulnerable or empathy as weaknesses, right? And uh, there's this interesting experience. I think it's true in the United States of America. I would assume it's also true globally that the higher you get at an organization, the more people think you got it together so that the, you know, the president knows everything and does everything. And it's not that way. Uh, they say it's lonely at the top because that person has nobody they can talk to or be honest or candid with or talk about their areas of concern, et cetera. So, you know, I always admired a leader more than others who said something like, uh, you know, I don't know that we handled that really well. So let's think about what we could do next time because they called it like it was instead of pretending like it was perfect and everything was great. And then behind the scenes saying it wasn't. They called it like it was because that's what everybody else was thinking. So I do want to move on, uh, Melody, to another section of your book. And you have a section called Fear is the Taproot of Conflict. And you know, I personally believe that fear is also one of the taproots of lack of bravery, right? That I'm fearful of saying something to a boss or saying something to a peer, cause, uh, to a peer because I'm afraid of their reaction or I'm afraid of their, uh, you know, the way that they're going to handle it. You know, when you look at conflict and, and fear, you know, what can you tell us? What experience have you had coming to the conclusion that fear is the taproot of conflict? Thank you. That's a great question. So when I say taproot, I mean it in terms of the practice of bonsai. I don't know if anyone listening has any experience with growing bonsai. Assume we don't. Bonsai. Tell us about it. I, I don't have much either, but I was reading this and I thought, oh, this is the perfect metaphor for, for this. You're not a bonsai artist in your free time? I'm no? not. Okay. I'm not. I know that's shocking. But... <laughs> so bonsai trees, you know, are, are miniature trees. And for a long time, I thought that they were actually miniature trees, like, but they are actually full-size trees that have their tap roots trimmed back or or their root structure constricted in some way right the tap root is the main longest root that goes down from the bottom and gives the tree structure in storms so ancient japanese and, and japanese and chinese horticulturalists realized that if you trim back the tap root or you put a tree in a very shallow dish the tree will grow in miniature in relationship to the depth of that taproot and how far it's allowed to go deep. So if you just trim back the taproot, the tree will still grow, but it'll be smaller. I love this as an analogy for fear because a lot of times fear can just grow so deeply under the surface. It gets so out of proportion so quickly. And it's not that it's, it's not that it's not important to honor those fears and to explore them and to understand them, but to not let the fear get the better of us. And I think a lot of times when we're approaching difficult conversations at work, it can just balloon. It can balloon, right? And so I think that we have more control over fear than we often realize. And to do the work to to trim it back in, in a way. Is that a helpful metaphor? I think it's helpful. 
It is. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's just amazing. And I'm speaking now uh, for my corporate career, uh, the degree to which we put up with bad behavior and created stories as to why we didn't say or do something. And we spent probably more time talking about the stories as to why we didn't do something than it would have taken us to do it. Right. So, you know, I could have had a five minute conversation with you about something that might have modified your behavior in a positive way. But instead, we put up week after week, month after month with this bad behavior because we're fearful of, of saying something to you. And, you know, I think your metaphor, you know, applies, you know, because I think the more senior you are, the kind of bigger taproot you have in the organization. Right. So, you know, a president isn't somebody you're going to go up to and say, hey, can I give you some feedback that I think might be hard to hear? You could. Right. And I would love to work for a president who was open to that type of relationship and experience with colleagues. But uh, it's hard. It's very very hard to do. It might be underappreciated. So you might say something and the president says, you know what? No one has ever told me that. And I've always thought that. So thank you. But that might be all I get, right? I don't get, and I'm not looking to be the employee of the quarter, but you know, it, it's, I think the benefits of doing it are outweighed by the fear of doing it, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And I think it deserves to be stated, even though this might be a little bit stating the obvious. You, you mentioned earlier, power sharing and a lot of the book deals with that as a major theme. And I think it's important for higher level managers to remember, because maybe it's been a few years since they've been lower down on the quote unquote food chain, to remember that when an employee comes to you, they're not just afraid of the normal interpersonal fear of confronting anybody, but they're also maybe afraid that they'll destabilize their position and their livelihood and their and, and possibly even lose their job. There, there's such a, or, or miss out on opportunities for promotions later, right? Because maybe someone who is more of a yes person will will get the promotion because they didn't speak up, right? There's a lot of fears there that I think are to some degree founded. And I think what, what managers can do, again, to create cultures where that feedback is not only welcomed, but they're assuring the employees there will be no negative repercussions for you speaking your mind because what you're bringing to our attention is valuable, even if we disagree with your disagreement. It's valuable to us to have that culture in place because you might save us a lot of heartache down the line. Like you said, a five-minute conversation might save a lot of heartache. I want to share one, one thing that actually one of my business professors in college used to share, and I've told this to a couple of people, and I've never heard anyone else say that they've heard this before. So maybe you know the origin of this, or maybe this was just his little heuristic, but I loved it. He called it the 110-100 rule. Are you familiar with that one? No. I I don't, I've never met anyone else who've, who's heard of this and it's such a valuable nugget that I love. The 110-100 rule, for every dollar you spend in the planning stages catching problems, you're gonna spend $10 in the production catching problems. And for every $10 you spend in production, you're gonna spend $100 post-production, right? So the earlier you can create that collaboration and catch those issues and iterate on making the ideas as strong as possible, you, it makes financial sense in the long run, but it also makes sense from a resource perspective. So I, I love that. I use that all the time in my work. <laughs> well, I think it's a great model and we do want our listeners to leave with models. So potentially Google the 110-100 model as a way to invest early in giving candid feedback, respectfully, of course, but candid feedback to somebody because the byproduct is kind of like cumulative interest, right? You tell people today, if you save $100, 30 years from now, it's going to be worth a ton of money as opposed to, you know, saving a little bit each week. 
uh, you know, it might have that same conflict uh, concept. So, Melody, the last question I have for you, uh, and we have not done your book justice because there's so many other concepts and models and ideas and thoughts that you've shared, but you also have a section on disagreements, and you talk about the styles of disagreements, and the one I wanted to talk a little bit about, which I think applies to people uh, and bravery at the workplace, is avoidance that people oftentimes will not be brave at work because they avoid it. And if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, why that's a style of uh, disagreement. I'm glad you asked this. A lot of work right now around these sorts of issues in the workplace uh, tend to formulate on things like personality differences, things like that. The reason I try not to go that direction is because if you say, oh, this is my personality, then that's just who you are. And asking someone to change their personality and adapt their personal way of doing things is like an affront to their identity, right? Instead of recognizing that the style that we have of communicating and facing conflict is, is I would say, mostly learned through our family systems, through our experiences in life, through the, the modeling we got as children in our home, through the media we consume. We learn that style of conflict. In, in another world where I was born into a different family or, you know, there's a lot of things you could surmise, surmise about that, but I might be a brawler. I might someone be someone who runs headlong into conflict, right? But because of my upbringing, I was raised in a in a home where we didn't we didn't really raise our voices, right? We didn't really argue. We didn't throw down in in the way that other families do. So I grew up with this idea that that conflict and disagreement is just really bad and scary, and I don't want to do it. I say all that to say, if if a conflict style is learned, it can be unlearned. Or if a conflict style is learned, it can be adjusted or tweaked. So you're not stuck with the style that you were necessarily raised with. You're not stuck with the norms you were raised with. Uh, we can learn and adapt other skills, right? So we can, if we are avoidant like myself, we can learn to become more what I would call conciliatory, right? Not rushing to quick fixes or not running away, but actually digging into the meat. And like you said, Ed, digging into the understanding before you try to resolve. Again, great concept. And I think for our listeners today, Melody, a huge takeaway really is context, that if you want to have a culture that is braver, or if you want to have a culture that can navigate conflict effectively, you have to create the culture that welcomes it, right? So you have to tell people it's welcome. You have to demonstrate it with others, right? There's nothing better than uh, being the person who talks about it being great and does it yourself. You have to reward it when it's done, right? All of those are so key in uh, making it happen. So, Melody, thank you so much for your time today. Again, your book, Brave Talk, Building Resilient Relationships in the Face of Conflict is fantastic. And how can people get in touch with you if they want to talk more about the work you're doing or, you know, some of the concepts in your book? Thank you for asking. You can go to my uh, my speaker author page, MelodyStanfordMartin.com, or you can check out BraveTalkProject.com. You can get in touch with me through either of those websites, and I look forward to hearing from you. Terrific. Well, again, Melody, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure, Ed. Thank you so much. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us this week, and we hope you join us next week as we further explore Being Brave at Work. We also remind you to subscribe to our podcast at BeBraveAtWork.com and or download and listen to our podcast on Apple, Google, CastBox, Overcast, Radio Public, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn. We are everywhere. Our podcast today was sponsored by Cabot Risk Strategies, whom you can reach at 800-222-5963. 
or visit them for more information at cabotrisk.com. And a reminder to check out my new book, Drive Your Career, Nine High-Impact Ways to Take Responsibility for Your Own Success, which is available everywhere online. Do you have something to say, yet are not saying it? Do you have something to do, yet are not doing it? Now is the time to be brave at work. Have a great week.